Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, y para ahora, yo soy la tormenta, Aracito! Did you use some sort of translation app online to, to make that happen? I only needed one word to figure it out because I, I took Spanish. I can oh, understand okay. Spanish. All right. nice. I understand it. Entiendo más de uh, hablar. Sí. That's yeah. that's my that's the extent of my Spanish. Yeah. So uh, why are we speaking Spanish? Yeah, I called myself the Storm because that would have been my nickname if I was part of the Buena Vista Social Club. Yeah. So we've been talking about the films of 1999 in this season, and it's time for our documentary pick, which is Buena Vista Social Club from director Vim Vendors, and this is our second Vim Vendors episode, joining the pantheon of such greats as Rob Reiner. And uh, Martin Scorsese and uh, other people. One or two others. Yeah, a few others. <laughs> Herbert Ross. Herbert Ross. Yes, indeed. And, uh, and I think maybe. Mel Brooks. Him too. Yes. So yeah, quite, quite a list, quite an eclectic list yeah. of, uh, of filmmakers there. But we had a less than enthused response to our last Vim Vendors episode in our 1984 season. We talked about Paris, Texas which uh, we were uh, roundly castigated for yeah. not enjoying, uh, but Dave liked. Dave liked it. Yeah, sure did. And, and the audience, they said, Josh, Jaracito, you two <laughs> saw it. Uh, eh, Idiotas. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're really, uh, really stretching the limits of your Spanish knowledge well, here. You know, people really liked that movie. And, they did. Um, it's good that we are... Uh, Exploring more of inventors, but this side on the documentary side. Yes. Although, as we'll come to find out, many of the collaborators of Paris, Texas uh, participated. And by many, I mean at least two. There you go. Well, that's enough. Yeah. And of course, uh, over his career, Vim Vendors has kind of split. He's made a lot of narrative films, but um, also has a thriving documentary career. But certainly this is his best known documentary, I would say. Uh, it was a big success. It grossed uh, $23 million worldwide. I couldn't figure out what the budget was. I didn't find that figure anywhere, but I, I, I can't imagine it was huge. I had seen, I could be wrong, but I thought it was something like $250,000. That so. sounds right. I mean, so that would be an amazing uh, profit for this film. It was also nominated for the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. Although it did not win, it lost to One Day in September. And of course, it was based on and inspired by a hugely successful album, the Buena Vista Social Club album, featuring all of these Cuban musicians kind of curated by Ry Cooter. And that had sold 2 million copies in the US and won the Grammy for Best Traditional Tropical Latin Album, the very specific categories they have at yeah, the Grammys. <laughs> at last check, I had seen in 2015... It's over 12 million worldwide. So yeah, a huge phenomenon. It is. It, it, I mean, it was a huge phenomenon already. And I mean, I think that's why, you know, Vim Vendors kind of came later in the process and said, let's make this film as they were putting together these concerts with these musicians. And of course, as you alluded to, he had worked with Ry Cooter before on Paris, Texas, and presumably they're friends and collaborators and so vendors comes in and says let's make this film yeah they, well i think it was not him who said let's make this film it was Ry Cooter, oh well there you go yeah you know who was scoring another film for him at the time and vendors had said like 
I could see his mind was still on Cuba and Ry Cooter was going back and he convinced vendors to come down. One of the first that I know fully shot on like digital kind of handicam stuff. And, uh, you know, I think um, <clears throat> it's got that kind of naturalistic look to it that shows that we're just using basically natural light and telling the story. And it's less about style and more about substance in this case. So. Yeah, it looks terrible is what the, the sort of uh, you're dancing around there, maybe. I, I didn't really care, though, because they did film so much in the in like the daytime in Cuba. So you were getting that that setting. But I, I understand if that's a criticism you have. That's totally fair. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right that that like I think on two fronts, one is that really they're mainly concerned with just capturing this however they can and using those digital cameras was probably a practical consideration as much as a stylistic consideration because they had to travel to Cuba they had a limited budget whatever the reasoning was and yeah those those daytime shoots maybe are kinder to the the digital cameras than nighttime might be i mean this this era of digital camera you see some like narrative film shot on digital in the 90s and they just look atrociously bad and especially in the dark. That's true. I think Michael Mann was kind of the first to figure it out, but he was using very expensive digital equipment at the time. This, yeah, I mean, the whole thing, like you're saying, feels like, hey, we're going, it's almost like a, a travel journal of sorts, right? And um, we're just gonna see what we get. Although if you wanted to argue that like maybe the performances, which are heavily in there, like I'm talking about the stuff in Amsterdam and at Carnegie Hall, maybe he could have like taken a little moment to stylize those a little more. Yeah, I think that's a totally fair critique. Yeah, the digital is less successful at capturing those than it is the sort of on the street stuff in Cuba. Right, right. What you're getting there is the music shining through. And that's pretty much it. So. That is. And so critics were generally enthused about this film, especially about the music. Although there was some uh, critical response maybe to the structure and the look of the film, uh, Roger Ebert and his guest critic, Wesley Morris, actually gave this movie two thumbs down. Man. Um, mm. Although I couldn't, the, the resource that I use to watch these uh, is just some dude with a website and uh, who uploads all of these episodes himself, I'm pretty sure from like VHS recordings. And for whatever reason, this particular episode was uh, not fully available. So there's the summary at the end where they say, here's what we gave each movie. So I saw, but I don't know what their argument was specifically. Well, so, I guess you would from reading his review. Yeah, I can give you Ebert's reasoning, but I'm not sure what Wesley Morris said and if he felt the same way. So because Ebert did think the music was great, but he had some issues with the way the film was put together. He said, I didn't expect a concert film, but I did expect that I might be allowed to hear one song all the way through with the cutting dictated by the music. No luck. The songs are intercut with biographical testaments from the veteran musicians. These in themselves are splendid. The stories of how these performers grew up, learned their music, flourished, were forgotten, and then rediscovered are sometimes amazing, always moving. But the movie's strategy is to show them in performance, then cut away to their story, leaving the songs stranded. The movie reminded me of a concert where somebody behind me is talking and moving around all the time. Let them play. And I guess, but, you know, we've talked about music documentaries uh, a, a few times now. And my feeling is that, like, just watching a straight musical performance for an hour and a half will generally bore me. Yeah, I am in the middle on this one. Like, the story is totally necessary to this, right? 
And um, I see Ebert's point because it's uh, a lot of people, like like we said, this was like, this caused a resurgence in this Cuban traditional music. So I could totally see wanting to hear the songs all the way through, but maybe there's a middle ground where like, we could hear one at the beginning and one at the end. You know, as it is, it's an hour and 45 minutes running time. So you either got to cut a few songs in the middle or just kind of like go with the structure they had. But I think you could, he could have like let one run all the way through at the end for sure. Yeah, there were a couple songs that I felt like were all the way there, but maybe there were parts that were, were cut out or whatever. And I think what Ebert is saying is that he wants both of those elements. He just wants them kind of separated more cleanly. Yeah. Um, but uh, to me, and, and again, I mean, for me also, like the music, I can appreciate that these guys are really talented, but this isn't music that I really am drawn to in any way. So I'm fine with not hearing the yeah, full song. And I loved it. I love the music. But Josh, did you feel that um like the structure was pretty, I thought, traditional in the way he structured this film? Yeah. I mean to me the structure was just kind of repetitive and basic. It's like, here's this person, here's kind of his story, here's some of his playing. Now here's another person. Here's that some was of his the structure. Right. And it was like that was fine. But I I, I after like 20 minutes of this movie, I was bored. Um, one thing I did like related to this kind of, uh, mixing was that there are a few times where he would show one of these musicians kind of playing on the street or in their apartment, just kind of casually. And then it would transition into the version of that, that they were performing on stage. And I thought that was cool. Yeah. That was a way he used to get into, um, these particular subjects. And the best one of that, I noticed it noted it down. I thought was Eliades Ochoa Bustamante, who was the guitar player. And you see this like great pan shot over these train tracks and you're hearing this natural like sound from all over whatever the environment is. And then he's just sitting on like a concrete, whatever, like, you know, a broken piece of concrete playing guitar. And it's like, man, there's music all over. It really gave you this feel and just how important it was to him and to the country. And um, like you said, like then they go into the performance and I like that as well. Yeah, it's cool. But again, I feel like there's another sort of that technique where he does it so many times that it goes from being cool to being like, oh, okay, here's another one of these where he just like the camera kind of wanders up to the person and they're like, oh, look, here they are. And and see, I liked all that. I think what it is for me is the two pieces because like, so and for instance, another example would be the Ruben Gonzalez, uh, the piano player, right? Where he's kind of going up through this like old building this old hall that there's um and then you hear the piano all the way through and then you see him playing and you see these like young gymnasts like kind of practicing there and to me what you're getting is great environmental shots of that area which i like and the music is so captivating to me i think you're you wouldn't have minded it if the music was if you felt the way i do about the music yeah maybe so i mean the, that certainly would have helped but it, it just it felt like some of the techniques where I was like, oh, that's neat. After like the third or fourth time, I was like, all right, I'm done. Right. But again, could that also be because like they just went on a on a whim? Not uh -huh. a vim. Yeah, I got that. Thank <laughs> whim, you. Yeah. W H I am not W I am. Yeah. Uh -huh. And just kind of shot whatever they could at the moment. Right? And then that may be very well that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably, you know, goes to also the the use of the cameras and they just kind of grabbed whatever they could use. But it it still, to me, makes the movie feel a little dull at times. So Kenneth, Kenneth Turan in the LA Times was uh, more positive overall. He said, 
under vendor's direction, Buena Vista Social Club has a trio of focuses. The people who make the music, the city and country that nurtured them, and most gloriously, the music itself. Besides allowing these sharply dressed, stylish veterans to tell their stories, Buena Vista Social Club provides a tour of beautiful but crumbling Havana, routing us along the sea-swept boulevard called the Malacone and revealing the sad states of disrepair the city's elegant buildings have fallen into. That this caliber of music comes out of these melancholy and romantic streets is no surprise at all. Being able to hear this kind of playing is a special moment in time, one we don't want to end and one that we're privileged to experience. And I mean, I think ultimately that's, regardless of what you think of the style or structure of the movie, that is really the point, that we're capturing these people in a moment when we may not ever be able to do it again. That's so great. Um, And actually, one of the criticisms I have of the film is like one of the last things Ry Cooter says in his um, narration is, you know, we went to Carnegie Hall and this was the last time Buena Vista Social Club ever played together. And I was like, well, why? Why? Everyone was still around. Why didn't you play more? You know, so I would have liked to have known that. But yeah, the celebration of music and these artists who were forgotten and rediscovered, like that's always a cool story. And, a you know, we've seen that work a lot of times in music documentaries, Searching for Sugar Man, a band called Death. I think we think of those more in that style, but this is kind of like a forerunner to that. Yeah, I mean, I like those movies better, I think, in part because there's more of a sort of narrative through line where they're telling a story. And like musically, I I couldn't tell you anything. I don't remember anything about the music in those movies. Really? Um, but, Sugar Man. <laughs> thank you for that. But I mean, but my point is that like, I don't need to be captivated by the music in order to find the stories fascinating in those films. And I didn't feel that way. No, I get it. I understand what you're saying. And I think it's a fair criticism, but at the same time, like I didn't, I was able to overlook it. You know, one, one thing is they split so much time, right. Between all these members, maybe had they focused in on just a few of the members, it would have gotten to that point for you. But I, I get it. It's like, look, man, this is, this is, the shot for all these people, you know, and it's like we got that he wanted to give them all their due. Yeah. And that's admirable, of course. Uh, so Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly had a more uh, he had his criticism from a different angle. He said the performances make you want to know who the band members are, where their music comes from and how it played out across a tempestuous century of Cuban life. Astonishingly, the film reveals almost nothing of this. During the interviews, the musicians smile puff on lusciously oversized cigars, and gently reminisce about meetings and performances from decades ago. Yet the conversations are perfunctory to the point of appearing merely promotional. I raised the point not because I wanted to see a political tract, but because what the film leaves unexplained is how the joyous musical outpouring, which predated the revolution, could fare under a system with a pathological distrust of beauty. Still, the music itself needs no explanation. It slithers and spangles. Well, it didn't fare well under that dictatorship. As we know, it was forgotten and kind of pushed to the side. Right. But I mean, I see his point in that it does feel as much as these people, I mean, and maybe not specifically just about the politics that he's talking about here, but in general, like as much as these these people are endearing, I did feel like all of the interviews were superficial. This movie to me felt like, a, a promotional sort of supplement to the album. See, I'm not going to say it. I mean, that's okay. But I would say less than that. It felt unfinished to me. Like, I think 
uh, Vin Vendors could have done more work. Like I would have loved to have seen footage from, you know, and maybe it doesn't exist. I don't know. Right. 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 But like, there is that segment with, uh, you know, again, Ruben Gonzalez where he's like carrying around these pictures of his old band leader. And it's amazing. Cause he's carrying them in a plastic bag. And like, you know, um, Ibrahim Ferrer talks about how we're not, they're not materialistic, but like these things are like, right. I would say treasured artifacts of his life. And he's just carrying them in a plastic bag. Cause that's what he's used to. But if we're not going to see footage, I mean, there's got to be something of the original recordings or at least newspaper clippings. Like I would have liked to have, you know, been back in that time, the 30s through the 50s, where they said this was the explosion, the golden age of Cuban music. And I would have liked to explore more why that died under Castro. Yeah. And I think, I mean, some of these these people were quite successful during that period. Like there must be something, like you said even if it's minimal, but we don't get that. And I, my feeling also was like, I didn't get a feel for like, where did the songs come from? Like who wrote these songs? Were they traditional songs? There's, there's brief references to songwriters, yeah. but. Yeah, you're right. Because there's an assumption that you just know, because they do say that like, oh, this guy wrote it and this, but I felt the same thing of, um, you know, you come in and it's Ry Cooter talking and like, we know who Ry Cooter is, but like, I don't think someone, I think in a documentary, you can't just assume people are going to know who Ry Cooter is, right? Like he's an acclaimed musician, but he's not a household name. I would always think you would want to at least say, you know, uh, at least have that interview. I'm Ry Cooter. I've been playing since the 60s, blah, blah, blah. You know, so I think that was a failure of the film for sure. I guess. I mean, I my feeling is like he's not the story really like you get he's he's the American guy who's bringing these guys together. And that's all, like all you really need to know about him. Um, I mean, it would have taken one minute to explain who he is. Josh. Sure, sure. Um, but I'm much more interested in learning more about these Cuban guys Me too. than him. And so actually elsewhere in Ebert's review, another one of his big complaints is that this movie venerates Ry Cooter too much. I saw that he said they focus on Ry Cooter and the performances too much, but I didn't know. I didn't think that was the case at all. I thought, you know, you see him do the slide guitar at the point where there's a slide guitar part in the music, like, you know, but um I don't know how it could venerate him too much in that like he and Juan de Marcos Gonzalez like produced this thing together and found these guys and brought them together. Of course, they're going to be excited about that, you know? Right. And and yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you that I thought I didn't need more about him, but I thought it was fine placing him exactly where he was as, again, the sort of guy who helped put this together and is enthused about it, but it's not about him. Right. I think one minute more would have gone a long way just to be, you know, he's got x amount of grammys and he's played in so many types you know world music is his right. thing right that's yeah. not what we know in america as like a mainstream thing i would have liked to have you know i've made my whole career in world music and i've played with this band and this band and that's why because i also think that builds up to why it was so important for him to be down there because he's played with all these legends right so if you have that background and he considers these guys to be of that level and above right he said gonzalez is the best pianist the piano soloist he's ever seen. Like, that's what I need to know that I'm not getting. Yeah, no, that's fair. So uh, I think you, you had seen this film before, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I had seen it before. It was one that had like slipped through. I Obviously, I think we all knew about it when it came out and I had never seen it. And then maybe 10, 15 years later, I sat down and I watched it and it was just joyous for me. Yeah, but you never got to see the Buena Vista Social Club perform. I, I would totally love to. You know, that's the type of thing I would love to yes. do. And 
you know, they are still uh, out on the road in some form. Obviously, a lot of the people are dead from this movie, but the music lives on with the Orchestra Buena Vista Social Club. And I would totally go yeah. see that. I'd love to write about it. That's the type of thing I really lean into. Totally. Um, yeah, I had never seen this. Um, I was certainly aware of it. But, you know, as we've established in previous episodes, music documentaries don't really interest me that much. And this is not my kind of music but certainly was aware of it as this phenomenon when it came out. So Dave, as, as our music guy, uh, were you familiar with this film? I uh, certainly had heard of it, but no, I'd never seen it either. And so I was happy to uh, get to check it out. And I loved the music. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was going to ask you, like, because yeah. you don't really, you know, your music's more like. Yeah, I'm more of an alternative music guy, yeah. and, you know, stuff like that. And but but I can appreciate the musicianship here. Yeah. It just to me is like it gets in your bones and you want to just start dancing and everything. Well, you know, I wouldn't. I don't dance. No, you don't. <laughs> Maybe on the don't, Patreon. So. Yeah, no, nah, even there. <laughs> but yeah. I'll use any excuse to dance. You will, indeed. You have any other background on this that you want to mention? Well, like you said, the uh, Lost to One Day in September. What I found interesting was that three of the five movies that were nominated for Best Documentary uh, were all music movies oh. that year. So um, there was Speaking in Strings and Genghis Blues, which were also films uh, about music and then there was one about boxing called on the ropes let's see anything else uh so i think they kind of mention it but they kind of just gloss it over right this project started with an album called like atoda cuba le gusta all of cuba likes right and it was cooter and um juan de marcos right putting this group together and then the second album to come out of it was the buena vista social club and that became the name of you know or the what this whole thing became synonymous with. And then after that, they almost formed a brand, right? Buena Vista Social Club Presents, introducing Ruben Gonzalez or Ibrahim Ferrer. And they were able to put out a lot of albums, which is very cool um, because now this music has found such a wider audience. That it has, much like our podcast. <laughs> we're the Buena Vista Social Club of Film History Podcasts. We are. We and... were forgotten for years. <laughs> and maybe we still are. Yeah. We'll get there. Come we... on, Ry Cooter, save yeah, us. Yeah, that's what we need. We'll come back then in a moment and get more of our general thoughts on Buena Vista Social Club. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 1999 we're talking about our documentary pick vim vendors buena vista social club and uh jason you're more enthused about this than i am so uh, i am i still really enjoyed it i definitely saw the flaws at least some flaws that i would consider to be there and i think we've already talked about a good amount of those but you know like i love uh you know you know, I was a big fan of Anthony Bourdain, and this is kind of almost predating that in a way of kind of going to a location and, you know, what travelogues are in new things. But like this to me worked as a travelogue, you know, and then also I just the music, I really just I just really enjoyed it all the way through. And I would love to discover more of it. And then, you know, um, how does that relate to Cuban immigrants coming over to America and in Miami and in New York and then kind of how does that music uh, move and change like I love all that stuff so I understand all the criticisms I just think the music is really the top for me and like you said we don't need to enjoy the music 
to enjoy the documentary, but it certainly helps. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And I think in a movie like this, especially where I felt like, you know, visually and structurally, maybe it wasn't the best. If I was more transported by the music, I would be a lot more forgiving of that. You know, I think like you are and would just be enjoying hearing the music. And I don't dislike this music, but again, it's just, it's not really for me. I'm, I'm kind of, I honestly, like when they're just performing, my mind is wandering. I'm not really, I'm kind you of zoned out a bit. You didn't have any, uh, like, you didn't feel happy for them or anything like that. Cause it's amazing. They were in a communist dictatorship. And um, like when they found Ibrahim Ferrer on the street, he was like shining shoes for extra money. And like, that's, that's like, imagine they found like Tony Bennett on the street. Right. And it was like, does anyone remember this guy, Tony Bennett? Yeah, we remember Tony Bennett. Oh, he's down there and he's shining shoes. And then you bring them back, right? Like, that's incredible, that whole story. Right. No, that stuff is good. And I felt like I wanted a little more of that. I think that's why, as we were talking about in some of those reviews, it feels a bit superficial. You get kind of the, the broad overview of those things. But, you know, as you were saying, we don't get any archival footage or archival recordings or a sense of that history or how and why they were uh, forgotten as the revolution and came just in. how big they were beforehand. Right. I had to look on Wikipedia because I think you get the sense, at least my sense in this film, was that they were all just kind of average people hanging out that enjoyed music in their spare time. And Ry Cooter found them and brought them together. But some of them were actually really famous in those early periods and toured the world. Yeah, I didn't get that impression. But I did get the impression of like they were big back when Havana was like, you know, a swinging place before uh, the communist revolutions uh, took place down there and everything. And like, obviously, that changed the whole country. And some of these guys were saying it was worse before, you know, Castro. So I think they could have gone more into that and why this style of music became out of fashion under him, because it's not like there was. Cuba didn't ban music, right? So Right, that's the thing. It's not illegal. We don't see them having to be in secret to record their music or they're performing on the streets or whatever. And it's it's certainly not disallowed or anything. So I, I just felt like I didn't really have a good sense of the context. And if that's what I'm looking for, is the story is a narrative or a broader sort of social message and that's not really there, then you're left with the music and the music is great, but it's not for me. I understand you wanted to connect a little more to the whole piece. And, you know, when researching it, you find out like, hey, these guys were allowed to tour the world, but other than a per diem, they weren't allowed to take home a salary because they're in a communist regime. Right. And, you know, there's some crazy stuff like that. But did any story of any of the musicians did like was there one that maybe excited you or anything no i mean a lot of them are interesting i i feel like that was the thing is that they were interesting enough that i wanted more and i just didn't get that like i thought uh what's his name uh Campe segundo the Campe segundo the 90 year old guy was was fascinating to watch him and just the the life that he's lived and the attitude that he has and he's sitting there talking about how he's smoked cigars for 85 years and and that stuff. And there's a scene at the very beginning where he's they're driving, trying to find the actual Buena Vista Social Club, the location where it used to be. And they're asking all these people in this neighborhood, oh, is it down this street or down that street? And you see all the people kind of start gathering around them. And that scene really drew me in. And I thought, oh, this is going to be 
really fascinating. And then it just didn't, again, I felt like, okay, we're going to use this as a jumping off point and learn more about what was this place and who was there. And we just didn't. Well, you, that, and that scene kind of mirrors when we get to Omara Portuando, you know, and just kind of like she's singing on the street, people are following her and singing with her. And I think I did want to know more there too. Like, are they singing because just like, there's such a rhythm to the daily life there and people just like that or is it because they recognize these people as the stars that they were like when i was reading about kampai who died about five years after this he died at age 95 right yeah five years after that they had a whole celebration in cuba like uh, for his 100th birthday and like a big concert playing his music and everything so all that stuff is valid i just don't know you know you really got to restructure this piece then and maybe you should. Um, but right. I mean, I think going back to that scene that you're talking about with um, the the only woman in this ensemble um, and she's walking down the street and singing that song and you see that people on the street are kind of singing along with her. And again, I thought, OK, well, is this because this is some sort of traditional song that everyone knows or is this a song that she was famous for singing or what is this song and why do people know it? Are they just following her? Because there's a camera on her. Like, I don't know. Yeah. The other thing is, like, they would talk about, like, the bassist, right? Um, He was talking about how, like, he spent his whole life looking for the right piano player. And it wasn't until he and uh, Gonzalez teamed up. And I think that was a missed opportunity to just, like, why can't we show them together playing, right? Like, you saw these people playing on their own. Um, but again, I don't, I, I mean, to me, there's just as much good as there is bad. Like I love the stuff in the studio and I think they could have done more of that, like shown how they were building these tracks together and, um, the production aspect. I mean, that's a little inside baseball stuff, but I like that stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't dislike that stuff necessarily. I think that could have been good, but to me, what's most unique about this is the cultural situation, it, like I, you can see a million music documentaries that show you musicians in the studio recording right. tracks. Right. Um, there's the game of um, dominoes between Pio Leva and uh, Puntalita. And like, that's fun because there are these two old Cuban singers and they're talking a little trash to each other and playing dominoes. I would have liked to have seen more interaction with this whole crew. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean... There's still there still is a lot of good here. Like I didn't hate this movie by any means. Um, I thought when it offers glimpses into daily Cuban life or uh, sort of the cultural context of these people, it can be pretty fascinating. And there are elements of the stories that they tell that are really interesting um, or just the the transitional stuff of what is life like, which is something we just don't really get to see very much. And I think it did that well when we were talking about Bustamante when he was on the guitar and he was talking about how he was just like basically a roving singer right on the streets. And I thought it did it well. Also, when we saw uh, Amadito Valdez, who was the timbales player, you know, which because like, did you know, did you know what a timbale was? Is that the percussion? Yeah, the drum. And and also uh, Barbarito the uh, loud player. Yeah. And see, and I thought that was interesting. He tells the story about like the evolution of that instrument and how it was brought to Europe. And then it was brought from Europe to Cuba and the modifications. And I thought, yeah, I didn't know any of that. And I think that whole thing, because that's another one of those like traveling musicians, kind of like the, I don't want to, you know, in Ireland, you have the buskers, the street musicians, but there is such a grand tradition of like, 
you know, we travel for the art and we just play our music and we survive however we can. Like, I would have really loved to have known more about that, you know. But again, now we've made this a six-part miniseries, Josh. Right, well, and that's probably what it would be if it were made today. You know, Netflix would commission it and it would be... An Ibrahim Ferrer episode. And right, right. And you'd have to have... Ry Cooter would have to be like like Anthony Bourdain or something. He'd have to be the host of it. And and I, like I this idea. <laughs> you, you like, I like it? this. Yeah. I watch yeah. it. Sure. See, and I don't know. And then I'd have different complaints about it. So I'm not sure that... I'm, you know, going to sit here and say that I know better how to have made this movie. I just feel like it did feel incomplete or like there were things missing to me. So you hear that, Vim Vendors? Right. Josh says he could have done a better point of view. Right. No, what I'm saying is that I, I don't necessarily think that I could have, but I still felt dissatisfied watching it. And uh, let's let Dave jump in. Dave. Yeah. What did you think? I mean, I, I think with any documentary, you kind of have to ride that line between, you know, entertaining and informative and this definitely goes more on the informative side of things you know it's the music is great but everything else is interesting but not exactly entertaining were you like when i think of like some iconic shots from uh like music documentaries and i think of like the last waltz or something like that and the way scorsese is able to move the camera i wasn't Really, I didn't love the way vendors moved the camera on the stage that much. I didn't. You? I didn't love the way he moved the camera. I didn't love the way the camera looked, like right. <laughs> to begin with. So, yeah, I mean know? that I do think is a detriment is that they're using these digital cameras, these early digital cameras that really look terrible. And to me, I wouldn't have minded it had he separated it, like if he had used that for like the naturalistic stuff. We're shooting it all in the day in Cuba, and we're gonna go with that. But then really like gussied up and dolled up the performances. And yeah, that would have been a cool separation, I think. And I think it would have been, you know, uh, there would have an emotional impact because these people who just had, you know, they lived their daily lives and now are getting they all said, like, we want to go to New York. We want to play Carnegie Hall. Like, let's show how important that is. But there was some cool stuff with some of the guys on the streets in New York and eh. No, I felt like that was just like hacky comedy almost like, oh, they don't know who these American, you know, pop culture figures are in these like dumb little souvenir shops. Uh, I, don't or, I don't think they like set them up and like, hey, say this or anything. no, not necessarily. But it's just like at that point, I thought I don't I don't care about this. And 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 as you say, they build up so steadily the idea of them playing Carnegie Hall and how important that is like. Why just why not just show them like Ebert says, show them playing Carnegie Hall. Don't show all the dumb tourist stuff. I think you're getting at you just don't think there was enough focus anywhere. And I I mean I can't to me the music was just so good I didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think those performances too, especially we've seen, you know, like we talked about Stop Making Sense. And maybe we didn't love that movie, but that's a movie where Jonathan Demi has really carefully considered how to shoot a live performance and that all that's all that movie is. And right. he and comes up with new ways to do it. And that's just not what they're doing here. Yeah, at all. That was my criticism of that movie was that that was all that there was. Right. Right. So. Right. But I mean, if you're shooting the performances, you that's, can do it in a creative way. And he's shown that. I agree. I'm just not going to hate on it. Cause I like the music so much and it kept me entertained and I wanted to root for these people. And, um, you know, I don't hate musicians who have given their life to their craft, Josh. I'm like you. I, I mean, I don't, again, I don't hate them and I didn't hate the music. 
Um, but I do find this music kind of, as I was, as I was saying, uh, when we were, we talked yesterday after I watched this movie, I took a little nap cause it kind of lulled me into a, a little, uh, sleepy state. Okay. If Jason is singing, then I think <laughs> we've reached the end of this. So should we rate this out of, uh, five, uh, I don't know, uh, weird santeria idols i was gonna just say loud since we're sure that's gonna too. say cuban cigars oh yeah there is a there is a cool scene of of the the cigar making yeah. that was sort of random and it was another one of those things i was like oh wow it's i could learn more about this but no all right i'm giving it three and a half just because yeah. i love the characters and i love the music so. no that's that's fine and, and you know i think a lot most people agree with you I, i'm gonna give it a two and a half with the acknowledgement that it's just clearly not for me but it's fine so dave I'm going with three. It's like you said, it's fine. The music is great, but that's it. Basically a bunch of wet blankets here today <laughs> that we are. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Buena Vista social club. Welcome back to awesome movie year in this episode of our season on the films of 1999. We've been talking about our documentary pick, Buena Vista Social Club by Vim Benders. And as, as we have already talked about, I mean, this movie and the album that it was based on were a launching point for all of these musicians to kind of have a resurgence in their careers. Pretty amazing. I mean, we see it now more with like the ability of media to go worldwide so fast, but this is great. Like they were able to go and tour around the world again and they did it you know, only a certain amount of gigs as the Buena Vista Social Club. And then each one of them kind of toured on their own. Ibrahim Farrar at the age of 72 won the best new uh, artist award at the Latin Grammys. <laughs> so that's pretty exciting. And they all got to make albums and really take their place, their rightful place in history and music history. Yeah. And that is a heartwarming thing. And I think Ibrahim Farrar seems like he was the one who broke out the most on his own and recorded a bunch of albums and like you said, won that award and uh, toured extensively. But all of these people really were able to do something. It seemed like Ruben Gonzalez also was a big, I mean, Kampai, like you said, very charismatic. He was already 90 at the time. Right, so how, how much, much can you do? Yeah. But uh, Omara, like they all, they all did great, it seems like, you know, and they all worked constantly from this, I think. So they all have such a specific skill set that like, why wouldn't you want this person doing this on your album? Right, right. And I think there was just this flood of goodwill for them from musicians around the world that they wanted to work with them and, and perform with them and stuff. I thought it was interesting. One thing we didn't mention is like Ry Cooter was like, I heard this sound in the 70s and I haven't been able to get out of my head uh, since it was Barbarito Torres, the loud player. And it's like that that would have been an interesting scene for those two to connect and like talk about that. Right. Yeah. He mentions it, but we don't really follow up on it. And and it is that is one of those things I think that the movie does where it tells all these individual stories, but there isn't a lot of the and way that they con the Yeah, issue. exactly. Exactly. So obviously, as we've said, many, many of these people are no longer alive. Uh, they, a lot of them were quite old at the time of this film, but a lot of them are still alive and they've continued to tour in various configurations, bringing in other Cuban musicians under the sort of brand name of the Buena Vista right. Social Club. And that's great. And um, I think it's cool because now you have that kind of, you know, moving organism that as um, people get older and have to retire or 
they die. Now we have new generations like picking up that uh, baton and carrying it forward, which is cool. Yeah. And it keeps this music, the kind of music alive and these songs alive, which is just as important as the musicians themselves. Right. right. So there was a sequel or a follow up to this film called Buena Vista Social Club Adios, which was made in 2017, Uh, not directed by Vim Benders. He produced it, but Lucy Walker was the director and it catches up with some of the musicians. I mean, again, even by that point, a lot of them are no longer around, Sure, but catches up with the ones who are still there. Uh, A lot of them who died, like Kampai and Ibrahim Ferrer, it it seemed like they died within five years of the making of this. And it's like, you're really happy that they got to this, but it's a bummer that, you know, they didn't get to enjoy that uh, longer. Although, you know, Kampai was already 90. So, right. He seemed like he enjoyed a lot in his life already. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, this, yeah. Right. This sequel, we didn't watch it, but it's, you know, catching up with these, the gang and like, they're telling stories of the ones who aren't around anymore and how the music is still ongoing. I don't know. I'd watch it, but it just um, didn't seem like I needed uh, to watch it right away. Yeah. I mean, and, and to me, I felt like I've had kind of enough of this. And I wonder if it's got more of a, because they're talking about all of the ones who have died, if it has more of a sad, you know, sort of bittersweet tone as opposed to this movie, which is so celebratory, like here's all these great people and we're discovering them and we're bringing them to the world. Well, I don't think it can because like they died on top of like, like how could you go out on a better note, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know? You know, Josh, I had uh, my acting, my old acting teacher, Joseph Bernard, who was not a Cuban musician, right? But uh, he's like a a legendary acting coach. Like when he died, he was, you know, in his 80s and he was old and sick. And um, he had flown to New York and he was Jerry Lewis's acting coach on like a Law and Order episode. And he died in his sleep in his room at the Waldorf Astoria. And it's like, you know, sometimes you get to go out the right way. Right. right? Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty good. So, yeah, these guys, at least they had that time at the end of their lives to really uh, appreciate and be appreciated. I think that's just as important, right? They're getting to do what they love, but they're getting that love back. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, we talked about Vim Bender's career when we talked about Paris, Texas. At this point, he had kind of fallen off as a director of narrative films in terms of acclaim. I mean, he continues to work. He's pretty prolific. But I was looking at sort of his career after Buena Vista Social Club and all of the narrative films he made after this are obscure, not particularly well regarded. But his documentary career, I think, has thrived a lot more. And the documentaries he's made, including uh, Pina about a famous uh, ballerina that was presented in 3D, um, this movie, The Salt of the Earth, about a Brazilian photographer that I remember uh, thinking was quite good. And recently he made a documentary about Pope Francis. I feel like all of those get a lot more attention and acclaim than his narrative films. Mm. Well, hey, he's still a working filmmaker and it's pretty cool that he was able to, if he's had to transition from one aspect to the other, he's still telling stories. So good for you. Yeah, he is. Oh, and again, he's still making lots of narrative films. It's just nobody really seems to like them. Right. <laughs> and I. I- Ry Cooter, his last album was 2018. He has, he's got a crazy career, man. We also talked about him. He did music for Streets of Fire, which clearly the career highlight for him. (laughs) Um, What if the Buena Vista Social Club was in Streets of Fire? I would have been way down for that. And as we recall, uh, anything goes in Streets of Fire. They would have been just fine. They would have, yeah. So Ry Cooter, a lot of movies, you know, uh, Paris, Texas, like we said, Primary Colors, that was a big one. 
the, the last album was called The Prodigal Son. We know he works with his son, uh, Joaquim, who we see in this movie a lot. He's also got a book of short stories called Los Angeles Stories, which might be interesting. And then the last thing is, did you know he was the subject of a documentary? No. By Les Blank. Oh, hey. Yeah. From 1988, Rye Cooter and the Musa band Rhythm Aces, Let's Have a Ball. That might be a cool thing to watch. Yeah. And I don't know what that band is, but, you know, as you said earlier, he's worked with so many of these world musicians, not just from Cuba, from all over. And that's been a big part of his career. So, and I think he's just like, if you like look it up, like how many rock and roll legends have you played on? He's just like there on almost all of them. Yeah. And still, uh, still making music. So, uh, between him and the surviving Cuban musicians, uh, maybe there could be another well documentary down the road. Juan de Marcos Gonzalez had a good year this year. Do you know what he was in? Oh, right. He was in that Lin-Manuel Miranda animated movie, right? Vivo. Vivo? Yeah. yeah. Did you yeah. see that with your daughter? Nah, she watched it. I, not <laughs> but I'd like to watch it. I guess that could be a good one, right? You uh, could uh, educate her about the Buena Vista Social Club afterwards. I could, and maybe I'll have to. Yes, you'll have. It'll be a required experience for her. Maybe she'll just come back to me, and she's like, "I already know who Cachito Lopez is," or something. Uh, you know, she's, she's she's so uh, cultured. You erudite. Yes, a, she is indeed. So that is Buena Vista Social Club, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, check us out on social media. Check us out on social media: awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on Twitter. Maybe one day we'll get a collection of these, and we will be released on World Circuit Records by Nick Gold. Uh, released the Buena Vista Social Club, Josh. I can't wait. I'm on Facebook as Jason Harris Comedy. Same on Instagram, Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Actually, Josh, I have 5,000 friends now. You have to find me as Jay Harris Comedy on Facebook because I'm drawing them in You're like the so Buena Vista popular. Social Club. You are. Uh, go for Jason somewhere lost in a communist revolution in Cuba. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, Josh Bell hates everything.com is my very infrequently updated website. Also, Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook where I am not quite at 5,000 friends. So feel free to add me. It's not actually, it's not a friend page. So I can uh, add as many people as I like at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, at the time that this is going up, I have a new album that's coming out next week, The Dissection Table. It's a soundtrack album, a score for a film I scored. Next week, as in when we release this, it'll be really, wow, that's oh, exciting. Yeah. So. Congratulations, Dave. Nice, is, there, is there a lot of Cuban rhythm on that album? No, just <laughs> horrifying terror. What are so. you dissecting? people <laughs> horrifying terror my favorite genre of music yeah <laughs> that's right that's uh, yeah that sounds about right yeah <laughs> so what do we have in our next episode Jason? speaking of horrifying terror josh <laughs> we're gonna take a real mind trip to a movie we all liked when we first saw but who knows now it's your pick josh why don't you tell us well going from one club to another club it is fight club the david fincher film which uh yeah i love but it's been a little while since i've seen it so We'll see how it holds up. I'm excited to rewatch it. Yeah, me too. So tune in next time for Fight Club. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.